You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On this week's show, from Labor Radio on WORTFM Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin, why labor needs to turn out for the midterm elections. Governor Evers has been an incredible friend of labor. Like I saw him work with the UW Hospital Nurses. We've seen him build 1,500 bridges and 5,000 miles of roads. He stepped up in that way that Scott Walker said he would build the roads and never did. That's a lot of good union jobs. On the El Desfio podcast, produced by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, the role of Latino votes in the upcoming elections. We said publicly, we smell smoke in the fact that Texas only picked up two congressional seats. Florida only picked up one, and Arizona did not pick up any. And these were states that were projected to pick up many more districts at the expense of other states that didn't grow as fast. From Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers, Jojo Burgess from Steelworkers Local 1557 on election season in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state. In 1994, while still in the military, I had a friend that was from Florida that had me listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I started listening and this guy was saying, we're just like this. And I realized that I wasn't like that. That wasn't me. So I changed my political affiliation to an independent until 1996, uh, which is when I registered as a Democrat. Arguments for and against election activism on Workers Beat on KNON Radio in Dallas, Texas. If you are one of these so-called revolutionaries who believes that the other arenas of struggle are the only ones of importance, you need to think that over again. Because every arena of struggle matters to working families. So get with it on the elections. And how the OE3 Political Action Committee works on Breaking Ground, the podcast from Operating Engineers Local 3, the largest construction trades local in the United States, representing over 38,000 members across a four-state jurisdiction that includes Northern California, Northern Nevada, Utah, and Hawaii. There, there are some that are honest that'll say, you know, uh, I just really haven't had a chance to research this yet. And that's, you know, we give them points. But, but when they come out and say, yeah, uh, I understand that uh, you're the ones that design bridges and you design buildings and things like that, that's not the engineers that we are. <laughs> that's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, please take a minute to subscribe and share the show. It's what we like to call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. First up, here's Labor Radio on WORTFM Community Radio in Madison, Wisconsin, talking with AFL-CIO Wisconsin Campaign Director Justin Miller. Can you tell our listeners what the AFL-CIO is doing right now in terms of the midterm elections? 
We are running our full program. We are a labor-to-labor program, talking to labor members and household members around the state, getting the word out about our endorsed candidates, why we endorse them, uh, their pro-worker, pro-union policies. We're doing it amongst all of our typical pillars. We have a robust phone program, a large door-knocking program. We have SMS texting going. We did a full handwritten postcard program. We have local union mail and digital social media outreach. We are using every channel we can to get our word out to our members and make sure they turn out and help us elect pro-worker candidates here in Wisconsin. What are you seeing so far? We have seen a surge in registration and some surges in registration amongst women as well that give us some positive hope. And we have a governor who just brought management and labor to the governor's residence to hammer out a labor agreement. That's something that we haven't even seen Democratic governors do in decades. So we're confident we have the right candidates and the right message to our members, and we're confident they're going to turn out. How are you reaching the whole state? With a robust door program again, that's our best way of talking to people, but you know, we're limited in some of the areas that we can get to on doors. So we have a phone program that gets into every part of the state. We have a full list of targeted down-ballot races in the Assembly, in the Senate, and in the Congress as well that we are really focusing on. We have text messages, uh, which has become a new tool in the last few years, and that's another thing that we can use to reach people in places where we know we're not getting to them in the doors. And then we do a handwritten postcard program that gets to those members in places where we may have difficulties in reaching them other ways. What are the issues that the union is focusing on in the midterms? There's a host of them, and I think the differences between the candidates we've endorsed and their opponents really highlight a lot of these. Governor Evers has been an incredible friend to labor. Like We saw him work with the UW hospital nurses. We've seen him build 1,500 bridges and 5,000 miles of roads. He stepped up in that way that Scott Walker said he would build the roads and never did. That's a lot of good union jobs. Uh, the I-94 corridor is another very important thing. We know that our opponent, despite working with unions in his professional life, does so only begrudgingly, and he does not support prevailing wage. He supports right to work and Act 10. Similarly, in the Senate race, we've got two incredibly different points of view. We've got someone who was raised by two union members and understands the issues on the tables of union households. And, and we've got someone who married into a billionaire family and thinks that Wisconsin has enough jobs already, as he said, with the Oshkosh defense contract issues, and wants to privatize Social Security and Medicare. I think that the differences can't be more stark between the pro-worker policies of our endorsed candidates here and, and their opponents. How can listeners find out the labor stances on the candidate? I would recommend that anybody can visit the Wisconsin AFL-CIO.org. Uh, we have a lot of information up on there, including a list of all of the endorsed candidates and member candidates, uh, positions on many of them. I would say the best way is to come join us and help us tell our members these important pieces of information. How can we join you? I think the easiest way is just to go to the Wisconsin AFL's website. That's WISAFLCIO.org. And there's a link right at the top for Mobilize. That'll take you to our Mobilize form. You can check off the boxes of whatever you're interested in, and we'll get in touch with you, usually uh, just within a few hours, and get you plugged in. Uh, we have things going on all over the state. The other way to get plugged in would be right here in the Madison area. We're at the Madison Labor Temple, room 226. We're here from 10 to 8, Monday through Friday, 10 to 7 on Saturday. And on the last four, we will be here 10 to 8 every day, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, right up until the election. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We know that labor needs to turn out in order for us to win this election. That was Justin Miller of the AFL-CIO. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Bienvenidos al desvío. 
Encountering challenges, making decisions, confronting struggles, and understanding the reasons for different positions are but a part of being engaged in our community's ability to discuss and make advances toward a more inclusive and fair society. However, there is no set formula to achieve these objectives. In an era where so much misinformation thrives, como Latinos, tenemos que estar informados. We must be informed. El desvío, many roads, one destination presents its listeners with 30 minutes of thought-provoking discussions on the relevant issues we face. Bienvenido, mi gente, to El Desvío. Today, we'll be discussing the role voters can play in the upcoming election. Look, it comes as no surprise that Latinos are one of the largest groups in the United States. It is also no surprise that we have faced barriers that make it harder for us to vote, and it is no surprise that our political power has been underestimated for decades. Let me introduce all of you to Arturo Vargas, the CEO of the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials Education Fund. Bienvenidos, Arturo, to El Desvío. Let me start with the 2020 presidential election, where we saw that the Latino vote was key in states such as Arizona and Nevada. And we saw that the Latino vote is what decided several elections. As we approach the upcoming midterms, Latinos, again, are projected to be the determining group in many states like Texas and Florida. In Arizona, yet, Latinos continue to have the lowest registration and voting rates when compared to other racial and ethnic minorities. From your expertise, Arturo, what are the main factors driving the low turnout rate for Latinos? Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. And I would add that Latinos have been absolutely impactful, not just in the 2020 election, but in virtually every election since the past 20 years. And I think it's too easily overlooked how impactful Latino voters are. And just imagine if we realized our full potential. There are estimated to be as many as some 32 million Latinos, U.S. citizen adults, meaning eligible to vote. And yet in this election cycle in 2022, Naleo Educational Fund projects that 11.6 million Latinos will vote, which mirrors more or less the number of Latinos who voted in the historic election of 2018. We've been doing quite a bit of research and trying to figure out how do we make the Latino electorate one of the most likely to vote segments of U.S. voters. And what we've learned is that it is very challenging and requires a lot of work and resources to motivate individuals who have lost faith in the political system and to convince them the importance of their single vote. That is exactly what we're dealing with when we look at the bucket of Latinos who aren't even registered to vote and rarely or never vote. We've held focus groups, we've done research, and consistently what we hear is that candidates either ignore the issues that we care about as Latinos, or they assume we only care about a particular issue and don't talk about the issues that truly are important to us, or they only show up every two or four years and we never hear from them again, or they make promises and they never deliver. For many of these Latinos, they have just lost faith in the political system. And trying to inculcate that new sense of trust and faith in the political system really takes a lot of work. After the 2020 census, many voting districts changed to match and reflect the updated information on the U.S. population. We know that redistricting and the process of drawing those lines of districts has historically been used to diminish the significance of voters of color's votes. Could you explain what the redistricting is and how it impacts how many Latinos come out to vote or the weight of their vote 
in this coming election? Absolutely. First, let me talk a little bit about the 2020 census. The census is held every 10 years, and it's the cornerstone of our democracy. The reason there is a headcount conducted every 10 years is so that the U.S. House of Representatives could be reapportioned to the 50 states according to how many people live in each of those states. What tragically happened 2020 census was that we had one of the largest undercounts of Latinos in 30 years. The last time we had a 5% undercount of Latinos was in 1990. But consider the magnitude. In 1990, there were 27 million Latinos in the United States. Today, there are 63. So the amount of error in the data that had been used for redistricting in and of itself already has limited the electoral opportunities for Latinos simply because the numbers are so flawed. When we looked at the apportionment of the House after the 2020 census, we knew something was wrong. We said publicly, we smell smoke in the fact that Texas only picked up two congressional seats. Florida only picked up one and Arizona did not pick up any. And these were states that were projected to pick up many more districts at the expense of other states that didn't grow as fast. And what do Arizona, Florida, and Texas have in common? The biggest segment of their population growth over the past 10 years was among Latinos. And so when you consider the extent of the undercount, it now makes sense why Arizona didn't get another congressional seat or Texas didn't get three or Florida didn't get two. Nothing we can do about that now. That's water that's gone under the bridge. But those numbers were also used to redraw congressional districts and state legislative districts, and in some cases, city council districts and school board districts. And so these districts to begin with are being drawn without taking into account the true number of Latinos who live in these communities. Add to that the fact that when these districts were drawn beginning in 2021 and 2022 by state legislatures, and in some cases, even by commissions, they were purposefully drawn in some states to deny Latinos their full opportunity to elect candidates of choice. And let me give you some examples. Texas already is being sued because of the way the congressional districts were drawn did not reflect the increase of the Latino population in which those two additional districts, not one of them, has a Latino majority. And that was done by the legislature. Florida, similar situation, but here it's because the governor pushed forward a partisan plan to benefit his political party at the expense of Latinos and African-Americans in that state. This almost seems like a feedback loop where we have Latinos not see the impact of their voting and then feel discouraged to continue to vote. There is an element here of a vicious cycle. If you vote and then nothing changes in your life after you've been told, this is the most important election in our lifetime. This is the time you have to vote because if you don't vote, then your life is going to be terrible. And so people turned out to vote and then their lives don't change. There needs to be some accountability as well in terms of elections and people are being elected. Don't wait for someone else to do it. You must get out to vote and make your voices heard. Somos mucho. And collectively, we have the power to determine the direction this country takes for its workers, for its people, for our communities. Hasta la próxima. Thank you for listening to El Desvío. Many roads, one destination. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Make sure to follow the United Steelworkers Union on Twitter, at Steelworkers, 
and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service like Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers, and welcome again to Solidarity Works. Jojo Burgess of Local 1557 knows just how much is at stake in this year's midterms. In his home state of Pennsylvania, the high-profile Fetterman and Oz race for Senate makes it hard to escape. I talked with him last week about his experience knocking on doors and talking with voters about the issues impacting them. But first, I obviously wanted to get to know Jojo as a worker and union member a bit better. Again, my name is Jojo Burgess. I'm from Pennsylvania. I work out of right now local 1557 U.S. Works, where I'm the new hire trainer at. Uh, right now I'm released political staff for the political department uh, for the, the election cycle. As far as your personal voting journey goes, you know, what has your experience been with elections? Have you always been a voter? I, I'm going to go back because I've told the story many times. When I graduated high school in 1988, which is a long time ago, I, I can't believe I said the year, uh, I went to the military and I registered as a Republican because everyone in the military says, if you want bigger raises and you want more money, we got to keep Republicans in office. And I was a registered Republican until 1994. And in 1994, while still in the military, I had a friend that was from Florida that had me listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I started listening to Rush Limbaugh, and, and this guy was saying, we're just like this. And, and I realized that I wasn't like that. That wasn't me. So I changed and I re- uh, changed my political affiliation to an independent until 1996, uh, which is when I registered as a Democrat. In 1996, actually, it's the first time I voted for a Democrat for president. Because in 92, I voted for George Bush, who was, of course, the Republican uh, nominee. That's the older George Bush. In 96, I'm out of the military. I'm not starting to get more active in the community. Uh, in 99, I get a job at a place that is organizing. In 2000, I get introduced to the steel workers. And I start paying attention to working issues and labor issues and got very active with voting for labor-friendly candidates. And I say that because I can vote for whoever I want, whether they be Democrat or Republican. And we learned a valuable lesson with some of the Republicans that were in Pennsylvania at the time. Uh, We watched how they voted and when they voted. Why is that? If they voted on a bill that was going to overwhelmingly pass and they could get away from it and they could say, hey, look, we gave you a vote, vote in labor, what they would do is they would wait till late, see that the bill is going to pass. Okay, it's okay for me to vote. If the Republican caucus needed their vote in order to stop something, whether it helped workers or not, they were voting against us. So we really had to start watching that and figuring that out. And I, and I learned that way back in 2004 uh, with my CLC. In 2012, I started working more with the U- USW political department and paying even more attention to how our legislators from 
various levels being from the state, federal, even in municipalities, we're doing when it comes to affecting working families. And paying attention to that really showed me the importance of being engaged as a labor activist in politics, if that makes any sense. Oh, it absolutely does. So this election season so far, what has it been like out there? You know, are there any common themes or issues you found when talking to folks, you know, at Plant Gates and out in the community? I, I can tell you this. Uh, back in 20, it was pretty rough because of who we had on the ballot at the top of the ballot. Now we have some key races, especially up here in Pennsylvania. We have the Oz and Fetterman race. We have our uh, governorship race. And we have some very extreme guys that are really trying to infringe on workers. And one of the biggest issues, unfortunately, is women's rights. I mean, I got a guy that's down here where I live at that says that Women don't deserve equal pay because they have babies and they have to take time off from work. How do you get to people like that? How do you have them understand that everyone still deserves a living and whatnot and deserves to be treated equally? And you can't, when you use that type of a bias, that is so stupid in thinking. And other people follow that though sometimes. It's crazy. But if, if we're not engaged in the political process and looking at I mean, if we look at what President Biden has done and we put this fact sheet out to our members about the infrastructure bill, the inflation act, all this stuff he's done has been geared at making working families have more of a piece of the pie, has a way to be able to compete and, and do things in their livelihood and not be sitting down, especially coming out of the COVID time when everybody was shut down and didn't have stuff. Now we have elections now where women's rights civil rights, union rights, everything's on the table with this election. All that's on the ballot. If we do not get help in D.C. to get these types of legislations uh, dealt with, then we're going to sit back and we're going to be living like we're back in the 50s, and that's going to be bad. At the end of the day, it's up to us as workers to make our voices heard year-round and this November. Make sure you're registered to vote and make sure to cast your ballot for worker-friendly candidates, we'll have our backs. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. Extra. I'm speaking on the very first day of early voting here in Texas where I live. And of course, all truly progressive people are asking everyone to vote if they possibly can. We had in my county over 400,000 non-voters during the presidential race and over 600,000 in the last midterms. So you can see that there are a lot of people that don't vote, and some of them have excuses. One excuse that particularly bothers me is the so-called revolutionaries who say that voting doesn't really matter. This was a bad problem 
throughout labor's history. In fact, one of the most militant organizations that ever came into American labor history, the industrial workers of the world, didn't believe in voting at all. They did not believe in electoral politics. Their idea was that they were going to organize everybody into unions, and then once they had a significant number of people organized, they would call a general strike, and then they would take over the governance of the world. Anything to do with electoral work, according to the industrial workers of the world, was just wasted energy. So you could see what a terrible mistake they made. And it was one of the reasons that they ultimately became ineffective. Wasn't the main reason. The main reason was that the government crushed them. But it was one of the reasons. The truth is that if a person believes that we need a better world, and if a person is thinking at all, they would have to realize that the only engine for change to a better world is the working families. Working families are the only people that can stand up to the class of people that is running things now. We often do stand up to them temporarily in strikes or boycotts or other kinds of concerted action. And we have shown that we can win in some of these smaller battles. In the great larger battle that is to come, working families are the only people that can win. So if you are one of these so-called revolutionaries who believes that the other arenas of struggle are the only ones of importance, you need to think that over again because every arena of struggle matters to working families. So get with it on the elections. One easy way to, to do electoral work is just to pick a candidate that you like, a good friendly candidate, and go work for them. I say that that's not by any stretch of the imagination the best way to do it. The best way to do it is work with one of the labor organizations because you are building that progressive labor organization at the same time that you're trying to win the election. And that will help you no matter whether you believe that great things will come from elections or if you believe that great things will only come from some kind of final confrontation, the kind of confrontation that the industrial workers of the world were working on. So both of these things go together. They both matter. And real serious people who want to see a better world will be working on elections. So get with it. Do everything you possibly can do. This election, more than any in my lifetime, it really, really matters. Well, thank you for joining me on Local 3's podcast, Breaking Ground, where we discuss all things labor, labor history, politics, and organizing as it relates to Operating Engineers Local 3, which is the largest construction trades local in North America. And we're very happy about that in these parts. So we are obviously in the middle of an election time, and people are getting flyers on their doorsteps, they're getting people knocking on their doors, they're getting phone calls. I think it's no better time than now to discuss how Local 3 does politics at the local level. And so I'm happy to have today with me 
Local 3 Sacramento District 80 Political Action Committee members, Frank Fuller, Travis Damiani, and Miguel Gonzalez. Thank you guys for joining me today. Um, before we get into what the Political Action Committee does, and that's short for, or, or long for the PAC, I wanna know a little bit about you and you know, tell us, let's start with you, Frank, when you join Local 3 and what you currently do in the field. I got in Local 3 uh, July 5th of 2005 as a uh, ready mix batch plan operator, and I'm still that to this day. I started in 1997 uh, for Spink as a surveyor. I was in a, came in through the apprenticeship program. And uh, right, currently I work for Wood Rogers as a party chief. Okay. Go ahead, Travis. Been in Local 3 for uh, 13 years. Um, started uh, as a laborer, Local 294, five years in that, and then 13 years in Local 3. And what do you do for Local 3? I uh, currently work for Vulcan Materials as an asphalt batch plant operator, make different types of uh, hot mix for uh, local uh, contractors. So uh, let's start with you, Frank. Can you just explain? Um, it's also called the PAC. So what does the PAC do? Well, the Political, Act, uh, political Action Committee is, is a group of members that have brought together, and we interview uh, prospective political candidates that are running for office, and we find out if they're actually labor friendly, if they're gonna back us, if they share our core values. Um, we give those uh, an opportunity, we interview them, and then we discuss them, discuss their potential and their, their answers to their questions uh, among the committee, and then make a decision whether or not we're gonna recommend them or not. So, how, so tell me how it works. So does the candidate contact District 80 and they're, they're interested in an endorsement, and then you set up a time when you just bring them in? Yeah, correct. The, the candidate will get in touch with uh, Local 3. Uh, Local 3 will then send out a questionnaire. They will fill out that questionnaire, return it to the PAC committee. We'll review it, and if it's something that we, we believe in, we'll call them in for an interview and sit down face-to-face -face and have them tell us about themselves, tell us how, how they're going to help support labor. Are they going to support PLAs? Are they going to stand behind us if we have to go out on a strike. So it's kind of like a job interview. Very much so. I mean, would you ever get the questionnaire that comes back to you and, you know, they fill it out and you're like, no way. It happens yes. all the time, yeah. <laughs> and we'll just... We'll Which is surprising because you'd think they would do a little bit of their research on a labor union before they would yeah. want your endorsement. Yeah. You'd be surprised by some of the answers. Well, just humor me. Give me a story. Candidates crossing boycott lines. And they're like, yes, I would cross the boycott line. Yes, I would. <laughs> okay. You're like, oh, okay, that's a no. Uh, thank, thank you, but no, thank you. Questionnaires <laughs> half filled out. Um, we'll, typically, we'll just file it as read and move on to the next. That's amazing. That's one of the first questions that's asked of a, a prospective candidate is, what do you know about the operating engineers? And some of them do and some of them don't know. They, they stumble. Well, there's some survey work involved in that, right? <laughs> you want to tell people, read your endorsements, consider supporting the union's way? Um, I would say look past party and think about the union. Yeah, as a committee, we keep everything personal out of our decisions. All of our decisions are jointly made for the betterment of the union and the members. Was that hard to do? It can be because we, we've we've all have different views on on certain things, but at the end of the day, is this candidate going to help us going forward? 
and that's your job on this committee. Um, well, I, I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, agreeing to do this, and I appreciate your time and effort in serving the membership on the pack. And um, hopefully, your endorsements uh, have some impact, and we get those candidates uh, elected who will support our core values. So, thank you again for your time. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. So find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. See you next week.